0: Welcome to Maceway. Thanks for coming on this uh, humid and uh, thunderstormy, rainy kind of day. We're glad to have you. And uh, want to get started with our call to gather. And uh, if you want to take a look at your sheet, we're going to do a song called uh, Forever My Beloved. So we're doing uh, another week of our fiction series and we're going to be talking about some themes that come out of a book um, by Orson Scott Card called Speaker for the Dead. And it's really a conversation about truth telling and about uh, talking uh, in terms of um, breaking down different places where we've kept secrets and um, trying to understand past and family and culture, things like that, with relationship to... uh, this story, but um, this song Forever My Beloved is a Julie Miller song and it's got kind of an Appalachian Celtic feel to it and uh, it's uh, kind of entering into the place where someone's near death and uh, they're talking to their uh, the, the people around them, family so anyway it's a, it's like a psalm that's kind of from uh, an Appalachian background, so I'll, I'll sing you a um, Uh, Mark and I will do this uh, tune for you and then um, we'll come back and do it again and I think you'll get it because it's a very repetitive
1: melody. Take me to your heart, my friend And bear with me my soul's lament Remember me in kindness when Sorrow Wake me not But let
2: mass Way. It's good to see everybody here this evening. We say repetitively uh, a bit of our story as a community. We gather each week to uh, uh, gather around the table where we uh, share bread and wine and juice with each other as uh, not just a reenactment of Jesus's sacrifice but our living and embodying that sacrifice in our life. We also gather to hear each other's voices and we gather around a text and we uh, tell our stories, we interpret together, We we listen for the marks of Redemption, the marks of, of creation, uh, and we understand that it's absolutely critical to hear each other's voices, to hear the voice of God, and to participate in the work of God in this community. And so, it's always fun to to be with each other. I have a special guest here this week. It's young Eli, who's his yeah. first week here. So, Amy is—that's is, right. This is this is Eli's first first week. He's. So no, no parlor tricks or anything today, okay. We'll make sure he gets an offering envelope on the way out and get that, get that kid to work. But uh, we're excited to, to see him. He actually endured me uh, visiting, I guess, the week before last. We hung out for a little bit, and he's a good guy. So we're, uh, we're excited to see you guys. Back in action. Um, hey, I want to remind folks as we kind of head into the fall, um, there's lots of great ways as a community to kind of connect with smaller groupings of Amosway. Way. And I do want to remind you this is the time of year when we have lots of friends and lots of guests and people who are coming to our kind of academic driven town. So, you know, it's just a season where you'll see new faces at Amosway, Way and uh, we're always excited about greeting folks. But if you haven't been in one of our home groups or pub group or one of those things and want to, this is a great year to do that. Uh, get the That we have space in a lot of our groups, and if you're interested, um, you can contact me or Elizabeth Eford. I'm not sure her email is on the uh, the page here this week, but if you grab me, I can uh, get you in touch with her about uh, about home groups. Um, and hey, I'm, I'm excited, Mark and and Wade. I don't want to steal your thunder, but uh, in steal, our steal uh, away the um, this series of fiction that we're doing um, uh, tonight. The emphasis is going to be a lot on liberative storytelling. And as I got the music on Wednesday, I was really excited this week. I, I knew Mark. I you know I knew you had crafted this song and you shared with me uh september which is a, a family story that you'll probably share the background too and uh, but in many ways the music this week is asking us to do what we'll do with our voices here in a, in a few moments is to kind of sit into stories and and truthful stories painful stories and ask uh, where where is the liberation and the telling of this story where is their hope where is their redemption so I'm, I'm really excited about the, the the music that you guys have, have crafted for us this evening
0: yeah, thanks, Tim. I think we're going to do um, a songs of preparation tonight. Mark's actually going to sing both of these. And um, uh, just in terms of um, this song, Red Dirt Girl, which we've done before, um, I know for me, I'll let Mark talk about it as well, but I know for me this song um, is a song where the, the, it, it's so visceral to have a, a story of um, uh, two friends and sort of, the, 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 you know, one of the pe- the groups of people in our culture that it seems like it's totally fun to rag on for anybody and and that the whole kind of politically correct thing hasn't applied to is sort of the redneck thing. And having a lot of rednecks in my family, I can certainly appreciate that um, this is actually a very um, difficult and challenging story of a woman whose life was truly, truly hard. And so in the telling of the difficulty of this story, I think there's actually a a great um, respect and care for this person who's a who's a friend um so emily harris has written it but um i don't know if there's anything else you would add mark to this um
3: yeah i guess it's it um the song always strikes me as one of those things where there but for the grace of god go i kind of thing where it just seems like two or three difficult things sort of happen to the woman and her life sort of turns out different than she would have ever thought and a lot of that's just not really in her control so and i think we'll see that from the book we talk about tonight too
4: Best friend Lillian and her blue tick hound dog Gideon sitting on the front porch, cooling in the shade, singing every song with the radio play waiting for the Alabama sun to go down to the red dirt girls in the red dirt town near Lillian, just across the line and a little southeast of Meridian. Brother, I remember back when he was fixing up a 49 in the end Told a little sister, gonna ride the wind Up around the moon and back again Never got farther than Vietnam I was standing there with her when the telegram come To Lillian Now he's lying somewhere about a million. For a red-haired girl somewhere out there, is a great big world. She had five kids It could have been the whiskey could have been the pills could have been the dream she was trying to kill But there won't be a mention in the news of the world I'm alive and the death of a red-dirt girl named Maria. Never got any further across the Still fall on Alabama The night she finally Laid that hammer down
0: A little musical chairs here
3: for you. Cool. Okay, so yeah, this is a song that I wrote about. Um, I wrote about my father after he passed away, um, which was about ten years ago now, and I, I ended up sort of having to adjust the words later because I, I came to, I came to see, and and this is definitely a theme from the book we're talking about tonight that. We, we to understand somebody we sort of have to put together their story and it's one of the hardest things about our parents is that we we don't really know them before we existed <laughs> so we can't really know much of their story we have to sort of put it together and it's one of the things that's difficult when you lose a parent at a younger age is that you don't really ever have the chance to be an adult with them and so you don't really get to ask some of the questions that you'd like to know so that's kind of the deal with this song and, and the first line and the last line is the same. September was a cold year that fall. I, I that's sort of a tribute to my dad because he used to say whenever he'd had like a really long day at the office or something, and you'd ask him how the day was and he would say, Oh, I had a long week today. He'd always say, like, Oh, I had a long week at the office today. So it, that's that's the way that the September that he died felt to me, was that it was like a very long year compressed into the period of a month.
2: Thanks, Mark. Hey, it's been good to hear that song, Tape Shape. You've told so many of the stories to me over the years of of those, those 10 years, so it's, it's good to see that. Uh, uh, developing a, a song that asks some great questions. Hey, this is typical for us in this part of our worship gathering. I'm going to give you an opportunity to stand up, offer the peace of Christ to those who are around you. If you're by somebody you don't know, please do introduce yourself and, uh, and speak a moment to each other. And I'll give you a shout in about two minutes and we'll, we'll jump back into the dialogue. So uh, rise and greet each other. So tonight, I want to tell a couple of stories about secrets Uh, and apologies to some of you guys that I've known so long I always have this like flashback when I'm like around Elizabeth or Denise or, uh, Denise had the privilege one time to, uh, and I think I forget who was with us in Kenya that year and you heard the same sermon that I preached, how many times? About 42 times, she could like mouth it (laughs) so apologies to those of you who I've known forever, Uh, you'll recognize these stories, Um, but Um, One of the things that, that I've reflected on for years is that my life has been shaped a lot by secrets. Um, and, you know, like many of the persons uh, who are my age who were born of kind of children of post-depression, post-World War II parents, the type of people who were taught to kind of grin and bear all forms of pain, shame, and assault. And these are the type of persons who guarded their stories. And and I think some of you might even say, thinking about parents or grandparents, they even sometimes forgot their stories. And And these were people at times who lived in a time of such great optimism uh, economic growth and uh, universal education for the first time and really a faith in technology that would that would solve our problems uh, my dad worked for southern bell as a kind of a mid-level engineer for 40 years and every year he got a raise and every year the company got a little bit bigger and it was just a it was a different era and these were the type of people who were so diligent and so determined and in many cases so faithful that they never really understood how Vietnam or Watergate or inflation or environmental neglect shaped the next generations that came after them. They never really understood that at times telling their whole stories, the stories of the pain, the stories of the dashed hopes, the stories of the hopes that came true might have been an incredible gift for their kids. And speaking about my dad, he's, he would fit in that description of, uh, like, he grew up really poor in, in the uh, western part of Charlotte. And I would ask him questions sometimes, like, Dad, I mean, what was it like to 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 really not always know where food was coming from? And, you know, to not really know if you're going to get a Christmas present or things like that. And, and, and very standard for his generation, he, he would respond, we weren't poor. I mean, we, you know, and like, Dad, you know, you'd push it, and you'd push it, and you'd push it, and eventually go, well, yeah, you know, we, we were a little poor. You know, I mean, just, the, but the whole story was kind of a, a guarded fortress, and, um, and one of the things about my dad, he is one of the most likable people that you will ever meet. He just meets people, the grocery store, the uh, people just like him, friends, colleagues. The other day, I took the train down to Charlotte to visit him, and as expected, he he was out front uh, of the train station in Charlotte, um, which is near the, the homeless shelter. And so he was in this conversation with about three homeless men and about four other just kind of typical middle class people waiting for them and just kind of talking to all of them and having a great time. And so for somebody who's so likable, it's surprising that, and my brother and I have tortured him relentlessly about this, is that he'll get a little nervous when he's in a, a, a rapid encounter, like when the waiter comes up and kind of startles him or somebody asks him a question and he doesn't expect that or somebody greets him really quickly, he'll stammer and he'll be kind of caught off guard and, and we just torture him about that. and But we're like, how does that fit with somebody who has so many good encounters? Well, one day I was just rattling through some photo albums and I, I looked at a photo and there was this disfigured man. There was this man there with literally a hole in his cheek and I said, Dad, who was that? And he said, well, that's my father, who I had who never met. And, and, you know, this was way back when, and he had apparently had some form of cancer, and they put him under radiation for an hour or two or something. I mean, something that you wouldn't do now. And so he had a disfigurement. He was very visibly disfigured in his face. And I remember holding that picture going, this was only 15 years ago. Okay, now I get it. I mean, you you know, when you walked around Charlotte when you were a kid or when you were with your dad, people may have pointed and people may have kind of looked aside and, and there may have been that 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 sense that the first encounter was going to be somewhat of a negative encounter or something that needed to be explained. And here was this real understanding into my dad that just, you know, looking at the photo, it never had come up, never in any conversation about my my granddad. Now, a lot of you guys know uh, my life was very affected by a secret as well. When I was a a freshman in college, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was one of those encounters, as I've heard it told now, where she sat down with the oncologist and, and... he had no hope to give them. There, there was this, this cancer had metastasized. It was late stage. It was aggressive. It was 1980. And so even though she was a, a very healthy uh, athletic woman of 40, she was going to die in 13 months. Uh, but as was normal for my parents' generation, uh, they just thought, you know, telling the kids might not be the best thing to do. I mean, this will take away their childhood or take away their innocence. They also believed very strongly. My parents, were, had profound faith that theologically when you prayed through pain and when you were faithful, God responded to, to those prayers. And so even though there were three pastors involved, I, I don't think anyone um, really challenged that decision. And, so, and I don't think they really prepared for death at all. And so to some degree, I look back on that time and in that thoughts and partial information, I made some really stupid decisions, some decisions that I regret. And quite honestly, I might still have made those decisions, but I'm not sure if I'd had more information. I remember one time that it embarrasses me, I, I came home to Charlotte and instead of going to the hospital and kind of prioritizing a family visit, kind of putting it off till Saturday morning so I could go visit a girlfriend because it just didn't seem that urgent. And I and that summer I took a job that took me out of state. I was away for three months, which ended up being the three of the last four months of her life. And I don't know if I would have made that decision had I known that. It all goes to say that cover-ups, even ones that are done out of kindness and love, can have really dramatic impacts in people's lives. Our scriptures talk about blessings and curses. And one of the things that they say about curses is that the pain of a curse will go from one generation to the next. And I would suggest that when we keep secrets and when we don't tell the truth or we hold things even out of kindness, they take on the same power that a curse can have. The, the pain, the regret can go for a long time. And here I am, 50 years old, and I'm telling that story that happened 31 years ago. So our, our words and our stories can have a lasting and, and a significant impact. Now, I've had the privilege of being a pastor for 25 years, and and one of the things that I constantly have come in contact is a a different type of secret that people tell. This is not a cover-up, and it's not a lie. These are just the false stories or the half-truths or perhaps the isolated perspectives that, that people hold on to. I've known so many people who have been trapped or overwhelmed in that type of secret. What they see in their reflection in the mirror is not what the people who love them see or know about them. These are people that often are too confident or too wounded or too afraid, too driven. Or two alone to hear the bigger story about even their own lives. So they live as a victim when they have the power to take control of their lives. They live constantly disappointed at times because they're striving for the very things that they cannot do. And ignore opportunities to do the things that they can do. These are often people, by the way, who are amazing actors and uh, who are performing brilliantly. It's just that they're reading the script from the wrong movie. Um, They think, they've been told that they're worthless. Or perhaps that they're perfect. Or that they're incapable or they're all-powerful, or they're unlovable, or that they're loved by everyone, and for some reason reality lies in this in-between space for them, in an honest, more life-giving space that they never seem to be able to enter. Now, knowing you, and you know some of you are known for so long and have had the privilege of hearing so many of your stories, I, I would guess that you know that predicament pretty well. You're people who are living and perhaps you're fighting really hard for the approval of a parent that will never come or significance in a fickle world. Or, and you may at times have said, if you were to ask, be asked, what are your regrets? You may say, one of my regrets is that there were people who tried very aggressively to love me, but I was looking for that in, in a, a different place. And perhaps you've been told, you've, and, and maybe you've been able to move from the story that you've been given, but maybe you've been told that you're a victim, or that you're not capable, or you're not strong, or you're not pretty enough, or you're a bitch, or you're not the person that somebody wants you to be. And, and that's been part of your story, and it's been part of your challenge is to, in some ways, wrestle with that story. Another thought that I've had, and this has been on my mind all summer, and I'll tell you a bit about this, is that sometimes funerals can be pretty dramatic exercises in these stories of half-truths and, and things that we see that kind of put us in a, a bondage. Now, I, I will say this. I have attended some of the most amazing memorial services, ones that were filled with joy and stories of liberation where le- reality and hope came together. But many, many times, uh, funerals don't work that way. In fact, as a pastor, one of the things you look for in a, in a, in a funeral setting is there's often this phalanx of well-wishing people that almost even try to keep you away from the people who have grief they're afraid that you might ask them a question that will hurt or ask them to share a story or a memory that will make them cry and it's amazing in that whole kind of preparation for a memorial service how some people work so hard to uh, to guard the the grieving and and sometimes we, we in, in, in funeral services we tell these stories that are so big be- beautifully conditioned and so wonderfully organized that that people miss the experience of of loss and grief and Mark your song is a, a really great example of that that sometimes we're, we we have to reflect on loss over a long period of time that's not the song you would have written uh, 10 years ago i think you said that, that 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 and so we're we're at times really nervous about about telling the stories of our lives and nervous about the disappointments and nervous about the power of the of the losses. Mark, you said it really well. You and I and Wade and a lot of us have grown up that way, have had parents die um, uh, at a young age. You struggle to grow up because you don't have that parent to scream at or to bounce off of, uh, uh, those type of things. Well, this summer I was at a, a funeral and at this funeral I thought, okay, we're definitely in this fiction series going to do Speaker for the Dead. This was um, a funeral for my, it gets complicated, ex brother in law uh, mimi 's sister 's former husband, but they had been pretty recently divorced and and the funeral was this amazing repetitive telling of the same story. Now, First of all, it's the longest funeral I've ever been to in my life. It was about three hours, and it had, I think, seven different speakers. There were four listed, but, but every speaker was exactly the same speaker, though a different person. They were my, my brother-in-law, Mike's playmates. He was one of these incredibly capable people. He was a, a painter. He was the type of person that said, "If you want to, kind of a kind of a Will Rodenheiser type. If you want to build a gizmo contraption, he could just build it. Uh, he he um, he built a about a 5,000 square foot shop in his backyard where he I mean he designed it, built it. The front was kind of what he used to call the He-Man Woman Haters Club, this kind of lounge for all the men in the neighborhood to hang out. Uh, you'd have to know the little rascals to know the origin of that story Uh, and then this kind of large work area Um, and and so at his funeral friend after friend kind of spoke about his life and these were hunting buddies Fishing buddies, And he was the total life of the party. I mean, my kids, when they think about him, they think about lake trips and he had a ski doo, and a boat and a suburban and a motorcycle. And I mean, and he was the, you know, the uncle that would say, hey, you want to go skiing? And he would pull you on the boat until you couldn't like, I mean, you just couldn't even straighten your arms out anymore. There was endless patience for, for play and for fun. Um, but the other part of the story is he really, really struggled to make a living. He, he, he never really found a vocation that produced money for the family. And the other part of the story is that he struggled to relate to his own children. He, 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 he was a better playmate than than a, a more persistent dad. And like all of us, he was still growing up. But during this funeral, I'm sitting there with my sister-in-law who would tell a... a uh, much, by the way, she knows I'm telling this story this week, a uh, much more complicated story of, of her own failures and his failures. But she's sitting there during the funeral just feeling all of these eyes boring in on her of, of just, okay, you're the woman who killed the perfect man. I mean, somehow your divorce, your life, this guy's absolutely perfect. And then I was watching the funeral, and one of her children, one of his sons, uh, wasn't. They just didn't have a playmate relationship with his dad. And, and you could see it on his face, the idea that I don't know this man they're talking about. He's not my dad. This would not be my experience. And, and sadly, and this and, uh, uh, my sister-in-law's name, was visiting this week, uh, we were talking over coffee about how those type of stories and those type of half-truths can have an incredible impact on your life and on your pain. And I'm sure a lot of you have those type of experiences. So I'm sitting there in this funeral, and I'm sitting Saying we're definitely going to talk a little bit about Speaker for the Dead. Now, let me—I'm not going to tell you much about this story. It's, it's too complex for that. But let me give you a, a little bit of a reader's recommendation because this would be a book that I, I would recommend. Um, it was written by a guy named Orson Scott Card, who's a local. He lives in Greensboro. Um, I had never heard of him. He writes science fiction, and I don't like science fiction. I'd never heard of him until I moved to Chapel Hill. When I moved to Chapel Hill, I was a um, a youth pastor in Chapel Hill, and and um, everybody in Chapel Hill at that point were like Jordan and Ian. They're just absolutely brilliant people. I mean, you know, like these. I mean, I'm, you know, you're like you want to ask them like, what's the meaning of life, you know? And, and instead of like give a youth talk to them, and so I started asking all these these young, particularly guys. Uh, Professors, kids, people like that. And Chapel, well, what is your favorite book? And almost all of them said this book named Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card and Speaker for the Dead is the uh, is the sequel. And what I learned about Card, I didn't know this for a long time, but he, he writes with a powerful integration of faith and theology in these intensely ethical situations. Most of his books have this ethical dilemma with if you do what you need to survive. It will kill this person or this species or these. So it's that terrible ethical dilemma of life for me is death for you. Um, He's also an extremely devout Mormon. He he writes kind of a Mormon theology into these ethical dilemmas. He's actually the great great grandson of Brigham Young. So when I say he's a devout Mormon, he's a, a Mormon's Mormon, so to speak, to, to use Paul's, uh, Paul's uh, language. And the other ethical issue that he deals with a lot, I think they, maybe this is why it was so popular in Chapel Hill, is he writes these powerful stories of advocacy of how our society manipulates gifted children. Uh, that the, the idea that society doesn't let gifted children grow up to who they are, but has a role and a place and a function for them. And so that's kind of a, a subtext. So in this story, all that you need to know is that there's this boy who's a child, who's a military genius, and he has been manipulated basically to command uh, an army and he destroys a species. It would be kind of like uh, us saying to, to, to Ian, you know, Ian, man, we, we need you to play this video game and it's really just kind of fun. But the video game is really, it's really killing people. And so when he finds out that he has killed so many, he jettisons his whole life his career, his name, uh, military, all of those things, and begins this guild of people called Speakers for the Dead. And what Speakers for the Dead do is that when there is a tragic death or a loss or something that, where somebody has lost their life in a community, and a community can't make way, make headway, they can't tell the story, then Speakers go and live in their community for months, even years, and they hear the whole story, and then they tell the story in a speaking, which might be a year, it might be 10 years, it might be 20 years after a tragic death, but they tell the story as an outsider and an insider, and the whole book is about the powerful liberation that comes with with telling the truth. In many ways, the opposite of the funeral that I was at, in in June, so I was thinking about the speaker for the dead, and I was thinking about this idea has really challenged me so many times. Because when people would press me and say, "What is pastoral care," or "What is spiritual formation?" One of the things that I would say really quickly is, "It's a narrative intervention." So many times to help someone grow spiritually or to care for someone in their pain, you have to help them confront their story and begin to develop a new story. It's a narrative intervention. So I think a lot about that. In fact, one of the things that has run through my mind a million years in kind of a counseling situation, premarital or marital counseling or caring for somebody is, are you telling them the truth? Uh, Because it's so easy when somebody's 16 or 26 or 36 or 49 to tell them exactly what they want to hear. And so what I'm always imagining, though, is in 10 years, if I don't see them, will they say, you lied to me. You told me. That if I married somebody who has my faith, I know it will work out perfectly. You've told me that if if something went wrong in my family, there would be a point and a purpose to it. But it's 18 years later, and we haven't found the point or purpose. So I I imagine that a whole lot and realize that this act of truth-telling and telling honest stories is so critical, not just for healing and spiritual formation, but just for living. for for being able to embrace who we are as created persons. Now, I have two caveats, and I'm done now. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. Uh, But when you get into Christian communities and you start talking about truth-telling and reality and hope, there's a couple things I think you always have to remind people is that there's always a perspective when it relates to truth. Uh, Some people think of truth as a compendium, a a scroll that you can read down. And and, and it's in, I mean, we've heard some political speeches in the last couple weeks that work under that mindset that there's only one way to look at things. And I'm talking about liberal and conservative political speeches that we've heard that type of language. But in reality, a lot of times truth is like our gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell really different and powerful perspectives on the life of Jesus, and they create a complex truth that's more than a fact sheet. So we should remember that. The other thing we should remember about truth-telling is that there's always people in Christian communities who live to tell other people the truth. <laughs> they have figured out your life, and if you'll just call them up, they'll straighten you out. And I look around, and I know several of you have been really straightened out on occasion, <laughs> straightened out into pain, tears, therapy, all sorts of things, because somebody wanted to tell you the truth in God's name, so to speak. But real truth-telling in community is always a powerful act of listening. It's always a powerful act of really hearing a story, antecedents, looking between all types of choices. And I think that's why I've always been drawn to Speaker for the Dead, because so many times in the book and in stories like that, the speaker will stand up and will tell a story of an alcoholic who, who beat his kids, uh, and the whole community is ready to to hear the, 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 the impalement of this terrible man, only to find how incredibly guilty they are in that process process, how they've been involved and where there were hopes and dreams and all of those stories. So that's, without going into any more detail, I, I would recommend that book. But let me ask you guys some questions. This is what I want to talk about tonight is, first this, what are some of the secrets or mythologies, the stories that you've seen that have either damaged you or challenged people that you know and love. What are some of the, the mythologies that you would like to throw out there and say that might be more of a half truth than a whole? This is the only way it is truth. Thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. So, one of the uh, things which is
5: even more so in the U.S. than in South Africa is that what you're told if you're, especially if you're white. Especially if you're a guy, come from middle-class family, you can do anything. And part of you can do anything is, well, if you don't, well, you messed up, didn't you? You didn't work hard enough, you didn't really do dreams enough. And so that's one part of being a half-proof. But another part is it doesn't really give you a whole lot to go on. It's apparently about freedom, but it actually doesn't tell you what a good life looks like. And instead you've got a bunch of other people trying to tell you what a good life looks like. It's buying this or buying that or whatever it is. And so that that turned out really damaging because actually you can't do anything with your life and your vocation. And although you're legally, I guess, free, there's no legal barriers to what you do, it's not a caste system like India. Really, it's a whole bunch of barriers. And being honest about that, I think, would mean giving up, I guess, the American
6: dream.
2: I mean we all believe Wade Wade has been with me when I've thrown a little tantrum in the Christian bookstore at one point Wade's dad was a an NFL running back and 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 um Played for my favorite team, the Dallas Cowboys. And there was a Christian book written by a Dallas Cowboy who was sitting there. It was a, a guy named Bill Bates. It was the story of how I wasn't strong enough and I wasn't fast enough, but I made it through faith in the Lord. I'm like, you have got to be kidding. You're stronger and faster than all but 99.9% of America. And you're, te- people, little boys are reading this going, Dad, I. I'm only 4'9", but I know I can be a pro running back. I mean, it's like it's never going to happen. But I think that's a big part of our mythology is the belief that we'll we'll suffer any kind of injustice to hold on to the possibility that we'll make it into the elite uh, without a doubt. Other kind of half-truths or mythologies that maybe sometimes we craft with a a well-connected theological word.
0: I was just going to say that one of the reasons why we did the songs that we did not only were because they have death involved in them, but also because of this idea of lament that um, I grew up around some Christians that said that after the cross, after the resurrection, there's no need for lament. Everything is victory. And so, you know, if you look at some of Israel's traditions, the entire book of Lamentations, which I never even knew existed except for in Bible memory uh, as one of the books of the Old Testament, but the entire book was done over the course of a year where... There's tremendous sorrow talked about with um, you know, a trajectory of some hope in God and then moving back into sorrow like the, the, the season of the year had way more sorrow than joy in it. And so trying to figure out why some people have said there's no need for lament anymore. We're done with that. All of our stories need to be victory stories. Hmm. I think that was a, a half-truth for me that uh, was, was tough to
2: sure move past. Sure. Thanks. Andrew, I was thinking, too, by the way, it's always great to have people who are not always enmeshed in our culture. be able to step back and say, you guys tell yourself some wacky stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Wade. Any other kind of stories that have been handed to you or uh, that you've held on to that you realize might need a little more, more challenge? Sure. Um, that if you, if you
7: pray, you'll get the gift of forgiveness right away. That forgiveness just happens like turning on a light. If you just pray in the morning, you wake up completely forgiving that person who hurt
2: you. Yeah. How many people have been angry at somebody for longer than a month?
7: <laughs>
2: longer than five years. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It, it's There's some of these things that we do redemptively take incredibly hard work. And they often, another portion of that story is the implication that you can do it alone, that you, you don't need a, a community of people around you who might forgive someone in a way that you can't. As a, I mean, it's, we're often told we, we have to figure these things out alone. Um, another question here. Speaking about us, and the us's like us out there, communities of faith, people that are trying to follow God, how... What does it take? Kind of following this idea of a speaker for the dead, uh, telling honest, liberative uh, stories that 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 inspire hope and are enmeshed in a perspective on reality. What does it take to foster that type of kind of healthy and creative and redemptive storytelling? What does it take for communities to insist on that?
7: My friend goes told me that on. She's like Susan. You'll go to therapy when it just
1: gets inconvenient enough. So I think you know that just when this
2: story is so bad that it starts to poke at value community, you can't poke a lot anymore. hmm and I think there's probably a pretty powerful community role in saying that this is we're coming. Your your life is coming back to that question. Uh, sometimes we can see that more powerfully than we can see it ourselves. We can see it in others. Yeah, that's true, Susan. Yeah, Elizabeth. I think it requires commitment,
7: like long-term commitment, because the trust that is required um, isn't just an instantaneous thing. And, you know, you have to have commitment on the part of the truth-teller to be like, committed to the person, truth tellers plural, you know, and that the people who are hearing the truth have to be committed enough to listen and to receive it. And so like, that commitment in a relationship makes the makes it a situation where authenticity is possible. Where you're not like, if I make this person mad, they're just going to leave our relationship. You know, if you, if you have that commitment that's, that's deep enough, we know we're going to be in a relationship whether, you know, I say the right thing or not, then you're more free to tell the truth
2: and hear the truth. It's not a performance. You don't have to get it right in that moment because there's something that you're holding on very dearly in your relationships. And, you know, honestly, I think that's one of my concerns when, when Christian communities become very, very, everybody has this, but when we become very, very entertainment oriented, then what becomes entertaining is this. Thing that we share that we have to keep pretty minimalistic, so that we can all share it, rather than the really hard work of knowing the people who are around us. It's a great point, Elizabeth. Other folks, uh, what does it take? Yeah,
7: I'll just echo um, what Elizabeth said. I I have a, I think I I think also diversity in community is helpful because um, I don't feel competitive, and that seems weird that I would feel competitive with other people in my community, but I feel with people that are like me, there's a sense of judgment. If we're similar and we make different choices, it's because you don't like what I chose because you believe your choice is better. So um, I have this dear friend who is um, very different from from myself and um, it's been wonderful. We've been friends for 30 years and um, She can tell me the truth and it's something I value because we're so different and I can tell her the truth because we've come to realize that we are so different that I can represent this whole other side of life that she doesn't see because we are so different and and yet she can do that for me as well and I I can remember um, she's walked with me through a lot of life and um, at one point she said you are such a half empty person. It's like a slap across the face because I'm like, well, I am like, don't I deserve that? I mean, look at all I've been through, and you know I've been through all of this. And, but it really kind of shocked me to the core, and it caused me to take some action. And um, instead of just saying, well, we're, we can't be friends because that was the worst thing you said to me, I was able to hear the truth from her. And like you said, Elizabeth, when we're still friends, I mean, we still see each other very regularly. And it's been very mutual because of that. So... To circle back, I think, to be in a community with diversity is very important.
2: Yeah. I mean, for Dan and I, we were, this was such a critical thought to us in reading the scriptures that one of the things that we really struggle with is so many times we read the Bible with people just like us and we we turn it into a kind of a a flat affirmation of who I am, the gospel according to why Tim is right, you know, and it's really easy to get there and I I think that's, and and this is why sometimes in our political culture we we treat diversity as window dressing or something that kind of lets you into the club rather than a light Livelihood of truly finding liberation in the in the uh, you know the questions you ask. I mean I mean we almost all even socioeconomically um, we almost all need to have somebody into our homes where we're either embarrassed by how much we have or embarrassed by how little we have I mean we, you know and, and how many times have we just don't have those those type of experiences and and there's so many different perspectives so that's a great point other ways that community yeah sure Robert.
8: I think we need to be uh, able to question what we know and why we know it or why we think we know it. I think when we begin to do that, we start to uh, understand assumptions that we've made that we never thought about before. The assumptions that that support our particular version of what we know
6: or what we might call true. Uh, There are many examples just in, in,
8: in well, even in mathematics, that uh, would suggest that you know this theorem is true, but you've assumed a certain uh, uh, basis upon which that theorem was developed that, that makes it true in that particular case. But once we've started to understand that we uh, have a, a very quick desire to know things, perhaps because knowing makes us feel safe, uh, giving up knowing something or questioning what we know then we feel unsafe but i think that we come at that point to understand or are able to start connecting that with what love really means that love is a different thing than knowing and where we might want to say gee uh, knowing this or knowing that makes me able to do this and do that that may be true but it may also prevent you from doing certain things so being able to question what we know and
2: as I, one of the reasons I always dreamed of a kind of a dialogue-oriented Christian community is that that reality that um, that um, it's so easy for for someone who's in my position at this precise moment to overimpose my experiences on how you're working it out. And I had a friend, a former colleague, who came to Amos Ways years ago, and. Um, Kind of left, and I heard through the grapevine. He said, "That's that place where they let the inmates run the asylum." So you guys are inmates, uh, but <laughs> but in some ways, it so misses the point that when you have a, people struggling to. Continue to tell the story of of hope and redemption and Christ's work in this community. That story keeps getting changed. One of the things I believe strongly, and it's something we should remember as we come into the fall. Every new person who comes into our community changes the story a little bit. It changes who we are. And in some ways, we can be entirely frightened by that. But what's been exciting for this community is we've been excited about that. What story are we going to be confronted with that we're going to have to craft into a, a, a theology? of hope and and a theology of context other examples Jim
9: Jim I have a negative example of uh, a failure to tell the story to tell the truth
2: um... we don't do negative stories here Uh, who is the (laughs) next person
9: (laughs) Um, so uh, I, I did my father's funeral service, his memorial service, and uh, he was a, a very difficult man, and many people knew about his selfishness, had experienced, felt on the, the losing end of his selfishness, and, um, but they were not my cousins and those that would gather to this memorial service, they all revered him as the fun guy, the good guy, so when I led this memorial service, I I wanted to say now we all know that this guy was an SOB but I, <laughs> but I I couldn't do that and it was the truth that was kind of lingering in the room yeah um, but the the power of the culture mm-hmm. to give a positive wrapping up of things was so strong that I had to find a middle way and mm-hmm. I I couldn't get to that point of truth to say who this guy was and the pain that many of the people in the room felt, um, how misguided or, or misunderstood, how misunderstood he was by others in the room. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do it. Uh, mm-hmm. Just got to the point where I, I had to somehow present an acceptable,
2: mm-hmm. not
9: happy, but um, honorable
2: mm-hmm. Well, in Well, in reality, Jim, you're doing it now. And, and and that's, I think, been one of the things that just you and I have known through the years, that you you had a gifted but highly critical father. A lot of your life was bouncing back and forth in that. And there's always the challenge of of context, of when can you tell the story. And I think in our culture, we, we a lot of times do death alone first because we go back to these places where we don't know anyone anymore, where we're not known, where... The, the, the story, and, and then we have to come back to our communities and, and, and say, What are you grieving? What are you mourning? What, what story do you need to tell that, that, that liberates you? Um, one last question for us today is uh, just this What do you think scares us in telling stories, particularly faith stories? What do you think scares us? What 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 helps us run to kind of like that old great Bull Durham interview the 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 idiot picture who's going to the middle of major leagues and his mentor says never tell the truth just tell him cliches you're the most arrogant you're the most selfish person but just say. I'm just here to help the team <laughs> because, and to some degree, a lot of times our, our gathered worship sounds like a Nuke Lelouch interview. I'm just here to make God feel good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so what are we afraid of? Anything? Yeah, Andrew. Well, I think uh, one thing people are really
5: afraid of sometimes is being forgiven uh, when they own their own part in the story. So, uh, if you read uh, Desmond Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness, this is about a country having an actual formal process of dealing with the past. And this is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a formal legal process in which people come in, admit what they did wrong,
6: Mm. and confront the victims across the room. And some of those victims don't forgive, some of them leave
5: angry. But some of those victims forgive, and for the people who come, and fess up what they've done, it's enormously humbling. Because they receive forgiveness from these other people. In other words, they end up in their debt. Um, and so I think we often, people who need our forgiveness don't want to admit it. And we, we don't necessarily want to raise those things with them because they're going to you know, maybe not say they need our forgiveness. And that's going to make us even more annoyed. And then sometimes I think we don't want to fess up because or raise things, because we don't want to be in the debt.
2: of people. We, you know, what if they turn out to be really good and forgive us? Huh? I mean, I mean, think it's better if they don't, right? Huh? Yeah. And so, I don't, by the way, I really recommend that book. It's really, really, really powerful book. It's a book about somebody who doesn't believe they deserve forgiveness. It's, it's
5: about, it's a whole set of stories, that real stories that, Different, too, tells from this time when he chaired the, the commission. So, mm-hmm. some of our people forgive, and
2: some people, you know, mm-hmm. they're
5: just all each and everyone is true, right? Mm-hmm. It's a
6: really
2: amazing book. Isn't just... it is amazing, too, like one of the most driving function. functions? Like we've, we've looked at several times, like that postsecret.com in our culture, where people write their most dramatic confessions on on small cards and do them anonymously and I'm sure there's some power in that but it, it, it robs us of the community experience let me read, the, the story today is just a paragraph um, not the book that I mentioned but I want to read one story from the New Testament and just leave it hanging there as, as uh, Mark and uh, Wade take us to um, To confession and absolution. This is the very end of Mark's gospel. It's Mark chapter 10, the last six verses, uh, excuse me, the very end of the beginning of Mark's gospel. This is the portion that kind of everything else is passion week after this. um, And it's one of my favorite stories. Um, Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city and a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting on the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Um, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. And and as every time I read that I think of the the, 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 the kind of the funeral fear people that say don't say it. Don't say how bad it hurts. Don't don't say how lonely you are. I and mean, he's he's a blind man. Uh, he's sitting on the road. Uh, it's not for you. The Savior is not your Savior. Uh, he's our Savior, but not yours. And and despite that, uh, uh, they're telling that to be quiet. He shouts more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and says, call him. And I can hear all the crowd changing instantly. Oh, the Savior wants you. You're in. You're okay. Um, and then he throws his cloak aside. Um, and, and, you know, for a blind person, that's giving it away. That's You're never going to get it back at that point. It's it's this incredible moment of, of vulnerability. He jumps to his feet. He comes to Jesus. And, and Jesus asks him the, the question that I honestly think is the most important Inappropriate and profane part of the Bible, uh, one that I would you would have never convince me at any point this would be in the Bible, but it is. Jesus says, "What do you want me to do for you?" Because <laughs> I always thought it was what I did for him, uh, but Jesus asked this incredibly piercing question: "What do you most need?" Expose it, expose it, put it out there in front of people, and the blind man says, "Rabbi, I want to see." Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Um, immediately he received his sight. And I think the most powerful part of this story is the ending. And he followed Jesus along the road. The road is death at that point. The road is, is not a, a road of physical sight, though his, he has his sight. The rest of the story is the compassion, the passion of Jesus. And most of Mark 9 and 10 have been about people who will not follow him along the road. Um, that was the Jesus that I never heard of when I was a teenager and made it through college without hearing about that Jesus. And that was kind of the Jesus I started reading about in seminary, realizing that that was this kind of encounter that we're talking about, a a Savior who asks the kind of piercing question that allows you to speak the most vulnerable answer that you could speak. And that's one of my dreams and hopes, and one of the things I've been most proud of for us as a community is when we, we fashion those places to tell our most painful stories our most liberative stories, that you don't feel guilty for saying praise God and that you don't feel guilty for saying damn God, that to some degree our, our stories are filled with, with that kind of raw angst and excitement, all under the idea that to some degree we're, we're a community that's living in this beautiful larger purpose of God that we know that we can't see alone.
0: Yeah, thanks, Tim. I was uh, thinking about for our confession that um, Frederick Buechner talked about the fact that he thought that uh, church would do a lot better if it was like a 12-step meeting where um, we kind of had to start by saying, you know, hey, I'm waiting, I'm an alcoholic or whatever, you know, I'm waiting, I don't have my life together. Because there's a, a level playing field, of truth-telling that begins at the beginning rather than some sense of, Hey, I'm Wade and I used to have trouble a long time ago, but I met God and I figured it out. So uh, this um, song, Looking Forward to Looking Back, is off of a record uh, that Over the Rhine did called Drunkard's Prayer. And uh, this song, Looking Forward, I think is a good confession of saying, I-, I am really looking forward to looking back on the place where I am right now. I really need to find a way to have truth telling help me create some distance from some of this difficulty Um, but at the same time at the bridge it says in the taillights there's so much hindsight telling me what i already know so knowing that we do need the truth that it's not just running from something but that sometimes we need to have redemption give us a place to actually make a turn and turn around
1: in the freezing rain feel nothing cousin on the pain I'm looking forward to looking back on this day prayed last night dear God please no but I was never good at letting go I'm looking forward to looking rain, feel nothing cause I numb the pain, I'm looking forward to looking back, looking forward to looking back.
0: I think it's because it's uh, a significant part of, of a story that I lived, where um, the songwriter Marie McKee is. Um, she's uh, moved from the South um, to LA and uh, is living out in California. And out in California, um, when I moved out there, I didn't realize this that I lived there, but they don't really have thunderstorms. Like the, there, there's rain and um, there's not rain. There's a lot of not rain. Um, but the, the rainy season is just sort of a time where you just get a lot of cloudy, um, kind of cold, wet, rainy, but you don't get the big, huge change, the thunderstorm, the clouds rolling in and all that kind of thing. And it really is something that, you know, when you've been a place where there's a lot of thunderstorms, you know, it's uh, something that you can really um, either hate or, or love. People feel all kinds of different ways. But I think this song, Dixie Storms, is sort of using the idea of a thunderstorm to help us tell the story of a place where... We, we felt like we hated something, but then somehow the truth is told, and we realize it wasn't that we hated, that there was something else that we needed to be free from, and once we were, that we realized that we could look back with uh, greater health. So this is our absolution tonight called Dixie Storms.
1: they fa
6: The mm-hmm.
10: I don't suggest using this as an icebreaker or as a pickup line, but if you ask people how they would like to die, most often in our culture we get something of an answer that says, well, if it could possibly happen with no pain involved, when I'm asleep, completely unconscious of the fact that anything else was going on, that I kind of slipped beyond life in that way, that would be how I would like to die. Uh, Something quick, instantaneous, no pain, where I don't even know it's happening. That's not always been the case. For much of the history of humanity, people have wanted long deaths. They've actually wanted their death to be a prolonged thing, so that during that time they can take the time to make things right to encounter the ways in which they've hurt people, the way in which they've hurt family members, the way in which they've hurt friends, that they've wanted to take the time to re-narrate the story, to say, I'm sorry, or to say, you should know this. And this has most explicitly been the case for the long history of the church. For the long history of the church, people have not desired short deaths. That was actually almost a curse. But they've wanted long deaths so that they could begin to prepare themselves to meet God. Now, I don't want this to sound morbid, but in some sense, as we gather around the table, as we gather around the broken bloodied body of Christ, we are preparing ourselves for death. We are in some sense gathering around, reminding ourselves that we are finite creatures and that this life is a continual prolongation of trying to make things right. It's a story that confronts us in different ways. The liberation theologians often would talk about cultivating what they saw was a dangerous memory of the people. This was a memory of the people that encapsulated the notion that things were not always like they are now. That the truth of what things look like now was not always the way that they were. And building that memory in a people set forward the possibility that things might be different in the future. When Christ says, come celebrate this table in remembrance of me, breaking bread, pouring wine and juice in remembrance of me, we are in some sense cultivating, I think, a dangerous memory, a dangerous memory of a story that says things were not always as they are now and they just might not be exactly as they are in the future. Now, it makes all the difference, I think, where you find yourself in that story. This meal, when Christ celebrated it, was a meal of liberation commemorating the Passover of the people moving out of Egypt in toward the promised land. But it was also a meal that spoke directly to the death of Christ, which was going to come at the hands of some of the people who said they wanted to follow him. And where you find yourself in that story, in that truth, makes all the difference. I think the problem for a lot of us is that we know that tension. We know that tension of the radical hope, the dangerous memory of Christ, the gospel in our world, that things can be different. But we also know the other side of that, that we actually might like the truth of now better than what's going to come. We might actually be benefiting from the way things are, and we don't really want Jesus to shake them up all that much. I think a lot of us find ourselves in the tension of that predicament, and we've been told a lot that we have to work that out on our own. But that's just not the case. The reason why we celebrate a table where we celebrate the gifts of God, the gift of grace into our lives, is so that in communing with one another, discussing with one another, talking about the gospel with one another, trying to understand what that means in our lives, we actually find where we are in the story by the way people help us see where we are in the story. That the people that we have wronged tell us actually... You've been Judas at the story, but the people we have actually helped see the gospel tell us, no, you're actually helping me see things differently. So tonight, as we engage the table with one another, we're going to break the body of Christ celebrating it and sharing it with one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you, recognizing that this is the gift of grace of God into our lives, and that in some sense it is going to change everything. And we're also going to do that with the recognition that engaging with one another in that, we're going to better understand how this gospel impacts our lives and the places where it might need to change the way we live. So I invite you tonight to a table that is, in some sense, the truth, a truth that sets us free, but sometimes a truth that also encounters us and forces us to change so that we might be free. Come now to the table. Break bread with one another. Share the grace of God with one another, cultivating in one another's lives a dangerous memory, but one that's also willing to tell the truth. Amen.
4: When you start to doubt that you exist, God believes in you, confounded by the evidence God believes in you. When your light burns so dim, and your chances seem so slim, and you swear that you don't believe in Him, God believes in you. When you rise up just to fall again, God believes in you, deserted by you. His friends, God believes in you You're betrayed with a kiss Turn your cheek to another fist God believes in you Yes it is Can't do right even though you try God believes in you Blessed are the ones who grieve The ones who mourn, the ones who bleed In sorrow you sow, but enjoy joy you reap God believes in you Yeah, blessed are the ones who grieve no one to mourn, no one to leave In sorrow you sow, but in joy you reap God believes in you Yeah, God believes in you Oh, God believes in you